We're going to continue in study, as you know, if you've been here uh, for any length of time, through the letters of Paul, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. We're in 2nd Corinthians now, chapter 5. We're just beginning chapter 5 today. It's our joy to start this new study. I'm excited about all the Lord will do for us in our own hearts as we study. My encouragement, of course, always to you is to be in the Word daily. You can find a Bible reading plan on version very easily. You can find one in a trifold in the foyer. You can pick it up. It says together in the Word, and I would encourage you to grab that and use that as your guide. But each day to be in the Word, uh, that one that's in the foyer will have you in the Old and the New Testament. Uh, let me encourage you to do that on a daily basis that you might understand what the Lord would have for you to know about Him. It's more uh, not so much uh, what promise will I pull from the Word today that will be the one that I claim because all the promises in the Word are true. They're just not all for you. But it will be uh, your ability to understand the nature of the Lord, uh, what His will is, how consistent He's been over time. Your faith will grow as you understand those things. You'll become acquainted with the Word uh, and cumulatively so that as you look at something in the New Testament, you'll remember those things that were set forth in the Old that pointed towards those things. And that enrichment in the Word and that broad understanding is really where the Lord would have you be. You might know His will. Uh, the Holy Spirit has one will. He reveals it through the Word, and you'll be able to be uh, begin to be discipled by the Word, sanctified. Those things that you do begin to come in conformity to what the Lord says we are to do and how we're to act. And so that's my encouragement always to you to do that. Take that up this week if you haven't started yet this year in reading consistently through the Word, cover to cover. Let that be your goal this year. And the richest richness of the blessing will be great in your life. God's plan for a healthy church uh, a study through the books of First and Second Corinthians. Uh, our first stop here in chapter five: confidence in the future. And really, this will be an introduction. It's our habit to do that. So, I'd like you to turn in Second Corinthians chapter five, verse one, and in your copy of God's Word, just read along with me, if you would. I'm going to read all 21 verses. That is our habit, as we ask the Lord to open our own hearts to see what He would have to say to us. God's people are best served by God's Word. What does it say? What does it mean by what it says? How does that apply to me? That's how we go about this study. And so let me encourage you to do that as we begin to uh, read. Let me ask you if you'll bow with me in prayer as we just kind of seek this time to be committed to the Lord. Father, we thank you today for your great mercy on us uh, that we are not consumed, but that instead of being consumed because we know your Son is our Savior, that uh, we have this bountiful blessing of promise that comes to us through your son, ones that we're going to read about today, confidence for the future that is so real and tangible for us because it's based on the resurrection of Jesus. We're grateful for the chance we can have to read your word and to study it. We ask that you, by your Holy Spirit, be free to work in our hearts, exclude from our thoughts those things which are not edifying today, those things which would shortchange what we would should get from you, those things perhaps that would take us off course and in a direction that you uh, would not be able then to speak to us for our own willful behavior would interfere. But instead, Father, I pray that you'll guide us to understand. I pray that you'll guide me as I bring these words uh, to this group that I love so much. I pray that uh, you'll exclude all things, uh, all thoughts and comments even before I even begin to say them that would not uh, be along the line of teaching where you would have us be. Uh, Lord, I wish to be... Uh, faithful under-shepherd of those things that you've given us, taking it from the kitchen to the table without messing it up. You know my own heart, and Lord, I pray that you will guard me from those things which would spill uh, some of that that you would have us to have. And Father, for these things that you were so uh, faithful to do, and because we're praying along with your word, we understand that's precisely what your will is. 
We pray in your name, in the name of your son, Jesus, for whose glory that we do this and all God's people said, amen. So look, if you would, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, it starts out, for we know. I'll be reading from the New American Standard. You can find that in the seat around you or switch to that on your tablet if you'd like, your phone, or just read in the copy of our version that you use to memorize and read each day, and I'll give you verse cues. We'll stay together. For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Verse 2, for indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Verse 3, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. Verse 4, for indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but be clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Verse 5, now, he who prepared for us for this very purpose is God, who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. Verse 6, therefore, being always of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. Verse 7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Verse 8, we are of good courage. I say, and prefer, rather, to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Verse 9. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. Verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. Verse 12, for we are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us, so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. Verse 13, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. Verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, That one died for all, therefore all died. Verse 15, and he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Verse 16, therefore, from now on we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away, behold, New things have come. Verse 18, now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, verse 19, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ Be reconciled to God. Verse 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Stop right there. Camping and outdoor recreation uh, has always been a part of my life. I remember as a child looking forward to camping trips with my family and extended family. And I have many fond memories of childhood and as a young adult of that sort of thing. And as a child, when it was time to go home, it seemed, and we noticed this when our sons were young, I always wished I could stay a few more days. The discomfort really didn't impact me too much as a child. I wasn't doing the cooking. 
and the lack of showers and general hygiene don't generally impact children too much, and I was no different from that. Dirty and sometimes wet tents were of no concern to me. I could fall asleep or stay asleep in a damp sleeping bag and was no worse for wear, much like your children perhaps and maybe some of your memories. As I grew up, though, uh, the love of camping and hiking in wilderness areas continued in my life. Gear wasn't what it is now, but we had what we could afford, and we made the best of it. My friends and I loved going where we wouldn't see another soul the entire time. And uh, I noticed, though, that as I got older, that although I loved roughing it and being off the path and, and being where I didn't see anyone else, I also looked forward to when it was done to going home. And I remember one camping trip, and I say that in uh, parentheses, it was an event that really sticks in my mind that occurred in the summer between my senior year of high school and my first year at the U of A. Uh, several of my friends, and that's University of Arizona, just in case you confuse that, I'm not a Red Tide fan. <clears throat> but uh, several of my friends and I decided that we were going to put together our own senior trip. So we planned this out, and uh, it was about a two-week adventure. Our plan was to drive from our home in Tucson to Southern California and, and kind of work our way up the coast. That was our plan, two weeks of it. And um, because our budget was small, we decided we would stay at KOA's, Camp of America, uh, for most of the time in, uh, in a tent and sleeping bags. And then a few stops at relatives of mine in between. I had a lot of family in Southern California at that time. So that was our plan. So we planned the trip. I was in charge of the transportation, and I borrowed my dad's 1978 Nova Supersport as our transportation, so we had a lot of fun with that thing. And one of the other guys was planning the meals, and another guy was taking care of the lodging. So um, to skip to the end, the trip was enjoyable. It was a lot more enjoyable at the beginning than at the end, and the biggest reason for that had to do with the tent. It was too small. Uh, Two of the guys, myself and one of the other guys, both well over six feet. It wasn't exactly waterproof, and they were my friends, but I didn't enjoy that close of company with them, if you know what I mean. And it wasn't exactly bug-proof, for that matter, and the longer we had to stay in it, the worse it became. And I remember one of the last nights of the trip, we were not staying at a relative's house, and we were at a KOA, and I just decided I wasn't going to spend another night in that tent with those guys, so I just rolled out my sleeping bag on the picnic table and spent the night then there. And I'll say that that next morning, as I woke up having very little sleep, that um, rolling up that tent never looked so good because I knew that rolling up and the eight-hour ride home and I would be in my own bed and in my own place. And I hope that we've passed the love of the outdoors and camping to our guys, and I think that we have, but no matter how much we love being outside and, and doing all the things that we do and the tenting ventures, they are all old enough now to know that after it's all done, home is where we want to be. And... We don't confuse a temporary place for a permanent one. The tents serve us well for a while, but then they're folded up and we head for our permanent place. And that, quite simply, is the background for 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1-8. through 8. As Paul conveys to the church his confidence for the future and his bright outlook, even though something as disruptive as death comes along, he looks at that a lot differently than perhaps we do. Essentially, he is saying, as you just read from your copy of God's Word, think of your body as a tent which is one day going to be folded up and put away so that the real you may head to your real home and your permanent residence. That's really what he's saying. 
And I think that if we've had any experience in camping at all, whether you love it or hate it, you understand that probably more, uh, it's, there's more tangible things there that you can put together and connect to your body and connect to this life uh, that perhaps you would be able to if you didn't ever camp. So that's the essence of what Paul's talking about in the opening verse of, verse, uh, verse of chapter 5. Look there if you would. Chapter 5, verse 1. For we know, he says, that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Now, it follows that Paul, a tent maker, would use this illustration. And I think that that's very interesting. You think about Paul's background, that as a tent maker, uh, Paul would understand this very well. The idea of the tent emphasizes the transitory nature of the habitation. And he understood, perhaps better than some, that no matter how nice the tent may be, it's still a tent. And... We don't confuse a tent with a permanent dwelling, and no matter how well made it is, after a time it's going to wear out or it's going to fail during its use. It wasn't made to be permanent by its design. It's temporary. But right now, all we know is the tent. This is what we live in. This is our body. But it wasn't ever designed to be permanent. And this is one of the keys of the passage. And the statement seems to flow out of the final verse of chapter 4. Look at chapter 4, verse 18. Paul says, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Here we see the tent, but our permanent dwelling we don't see yet. And so that certainly fits in with that understanding that those who are on that pathway, those who are on that course for a fulfilled life and and lasting ministry are ones that embrace the eternal and not the temporal. And so we said that those who stay on course have really plotted this waypoint in their life, and the value of the unseen over the things that are seen uh, is in proper perspective in their life. And this, this first verse of chapter 5 really illustrates Paul's point. It's the first stop there for him to say, okay, if you, if you value the unseen over the seen, this is your first stop. And Paul's confidence in the future really starts by this attitude towards death. The believer is confident in death. And so that's our first stop. And, and that future for every single person with the possible exception of, uh, of those alive at the return of Christ, that's the future for everyone. The, giving, uh, the, the folding up the tent for the last time and moving to the eternal home. And we'll be caught, if you're here and alive at the return of Christ, we'll be caught up with the rapture. But, so except for that generation, uh, all of us will have an obituary in the paper. All of us will uh, have someone standing in a pulpit somewhere saying, um, uh, we've promoted Kurt Parker. And so... Uh, we've promoted and put your name in there. That is, that's the reality of everyone. So uh, I guess it's, it's good to realize that. It's good to understand that. It's good to think about that because we can understand then what Paul has to say and bring great comfort and confidence to our lives as we think about this reality for everyone. We don't have to fear, and we shouldn't fear that day. In fact, it can be, we can be confident, and, and, and the absence of fear of that day really is a trademark of those who walk with the Lord. You understand that this is the reality. This is the, the physical illustration of the fall, and this is the future for everyone, but we can be confident and not have fear. And we're going to look at some reasons for our confidence. It's not just based on some good feelings or an educated guess. Paul says in Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Now, even though Paul is using a tent home illustration, what are we really illustrating here? We're illustrating the resurrection, right? I mean, that's actually Paul's point. I mean, he's he's talking about uh, eventually the bodily resurrection. So this is not a new topic for Paul. It's an illustration he hasn't used, but it's not a new topic for us. So 
keep your spiritual eyes on this. That's what he says in the last uh, verse of chapter 4. This is part of the unseen. Paul is reviewing this really important reality. And as we've seen from our our study, the understanding of of the bodily resurrection is very basic to Christianity. We've looked at it numerous times since I've been here with you. It's not new to you. I'm sure you've studied it well before I came. And, And we have spent much time on this topic and the underlying guarantee of a bodily resurrection, which is what? Christ's resurrection from the grave. Our underlying guarantee of a bodily resurrection is based on Christ's resurrection. That marvelous truth, very fundamental to Paul's thinking, very fundamental element in Christian theology. And it should make its way, because this is true, beloved, it needs to make its way into the very fabric of our thinking so that we could say with Paul, in all honesty and all confidence, I know that when I fold up this tent at the end of the camping trip, which is what this life is, I'm moving into a permanent home, and Paul is obviously talking about a physical body. Now, whether we're looking at Job's statement in Job 19, uh, 23, where he says, Oh, that my words were written, oh, that they were inscribed in a book, that with an iron stylus and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. What is it that you want us to know, Job? What is it that you want to make sure everyone knows that you've found and understand so clearly? As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth, even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see, and not another, my heart faints within me, and the implied is at that thought. And so, Job says, I wished I could inscribe this with an iron stylus. I wish I could engrave this in something so that everyone who came afterward would get this in their mind the, the reality and the importance of uh, this issue, which is I will see, I will my, myself behold after I have died with my flesh, a resurrected body, I will see the Lord. Or if you remember, Jesus talked about this very clearly in John chapter 5, verse 25. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, this is for sure. Know this as well as you know anything. An hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. Now, what je- death is Jesus speaking of here? Well, those who are spiritually dead, spiritually dead. The, the dead will hear uh, the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear, and that would be hear and act on it, right? So to believe in Jesus as salvation for salvation, those who hear will live. Future active indicative. This is the actual reality of those who hear the Son of God's words and act on them. Okay, it's very a very clear way of presenting how the gospel comes. It comes. It's the voice of the Son of God in the Word of God. You hear and act on it, and you will live. Just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself, and he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, Jesus says, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. Now, what kind of death is this? That's physical death, right? All who are in the tombs. Can't really deny that. I mean, that's this Lazarus in the tomb. Lord, don't go in. He, he's been there long enough. He's going he's to be stinky, right? Um, it's all who are in the tombs, all who are in the grave will hear his voice. Don't, don't, uh, make, don't be confused. Don't marvel. This is how it's going to be. Verse 29, and will come forth those who did the good things to a resurrection of life and those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Now, what do we see there? Without breaking that down too much, it's pretty obvious. You have two things going on here, right? So you have, you have uh, a physical body, right? You have um, a physical bodily resurrection, For both those who heard and believed in life and are now dead. 
and a physical bodily resurrection for those who would not hear and believe in life and now dead, right? Do you, you get that from the passage? So he says there's coming a time when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear, that's who those who act on it, they hear with understanding and act on it, will live. And not only that, for just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And so there's authority from God himself to the Son, and he gave him authority to execute judgment. So there's going to be some who hear and don't act on it, right? And there's going to be some who hear and do. Both of them will physically what? Die. Both of them will be in the tombs, okay? Don't marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, that's physical death, they're in the tombs, and will come forth, those who did the good deeds to the resurrection of life, those who committed evil deeds to the resurrection of judgment. Now, you weren't saved by works, and you weren't lost by works. You just indicated who you were and whose you were by what you did. Scripture is replete with that kind of illustration. We've looked at it over and over again. We won't go through it again. So, very clearly, Paul's talking about the resurrection of the body. Jesus is talking about it. Job, obviously, talking about it. Paul, in Romans chapter 8, verse 25, he says, verse 23, rather, he affirms there's more to salvation than the coming alive spiritually. Verse 23 says, And not only this, but we also, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves. We're born again. We're waiting. What are we waiting for? For our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. So there's two figures of speech that refer to the resurrection, right? Paul calls it the, the folding up of the tent and moving into a permanent dwelling. Um, Job says, in my physical body, I will see God. In other words, I will throw off this old tent, but I will have a physical body to look at the Lord. Jesus says, listen, there will be in the tombs, but they will come out, some to life and some to eternal damnation. And Paul says, it's our adoption as sons, our redemption of the body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope... For what we do not see, with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. What does he mean? Well, it just confirms that the first fruits of salvation is the giving of the Holy Spirit when a person comes to faith. You come to faith, you get the seal of the Holy Spirit. We're going to see that in our passage later. You come to life spiritually, okay? But you also have this marvelous promise from the tent to the permanent dwelling. And here it's referred to in two different ways for clarification. Our adoption as sons and the redemption of our body. Now, I'm going to go through some of these illustrations. There's places in your notes where you can copy these down. My, my thought would be that some of these resonate more with you perhaps than others, depending on where you are in your life. And so, you know, as we go through some of these, they're underlined there. These are, these are words that the scriptures use to refer to Paul's illustration of a tent to a permanent dwelling. So whatever works for you, however is it encouraging to you, that's your takeaway. And Paul calls that the folding of the tent. The redemption of our body is the folding of the tent. John refers to it too when he confirms that there is more to salvation than being made right with God to being adopted into his family. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, he says this, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called the children of God. And we're called that, right? That's your name. If you come to faith, you're called the children of God. We just sang that just a little bit ago. And such we are. So that's the reality for you, and that's the reality for me if you're born again. For this reason, the world does not know us, and because we're called that and it's our reality, we're not at home here, right? The world doesn't know us, and this doesn't feel like a comfortable place, much like the end of a camping trip, okay? You're ready to get off the rocks, you're ready to get off the bumps, you're ready to get out of the wet, you're ready to get out of the, of the bugs, and all that stuff. So, for this reason, the world does not know us because it didn't know him. Beloved, now we are children of God Now catch this, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be 
like him because we will see him just as he is. There's another way that the scriptures use to give us the same idea of the, of the putting off the tent and the putting on of the new. Okay, we, we see it in the redemption of our body. We see it as our adoption as sons. We see it um, as sewing off the tent. We see it as we will be like it. We're waiting, right? You have the Holy Spirit. Um, he's bestowed on, that on us. We have the first fruits, Paul said. Um, so we're waiting, though, if you will, for that induction ceremony, right? The, um, once again, I'll say this again because it's so important to us. There's no such thing as salvation without a future part, Okay. Salvation includes a future, and right now we have a redeemed inner man, the real you, the truest thing about you, and we're waiting for our redeemed bodies. There is always a future tense connected to the present salvation. But in the meantime, the real you is being kept as if in a prison in this body. And we see that in numerous places in the scriptures that talk about that. Or as Paul says, in a tent, a temporary dwelling. And it is keeping that new creation on the inside under wraps we are corrupted, we're mortal, we're disease-prone, we're death-prone, we're human, but the inside, you're new. But you're wrapped up in this old tent, or you're wrapped up in uh, something that isn't like Christ, but will be eventually. And that's why it says in Romans thirteen eleven. catch this, please, this is really good stuff. He says this, Do this, knowing the time that is, is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now, here is how the future sense is referred to, uh, for now... Salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. So the idea is you come to faith, the new you is on the inside, wrapped in the old self, wrapped in the tent, but there is coming a time where you'll be delivered from that. Our adoption of sons, the redemption of our body, we will, we will be like him. We'll throw off the tent, okay? And that time, Romans thirteen eleven says, is nearer to us than when, you, when we believed. What, we, we didn't get salvation when we believed? Yes, we did. So what aspect of salvation is left? The release from the tent, that's the mortal body. And we look forward to it with expectation, see? Because that's, that's our inheritance. That's what we're looking forward to. That's what the Lord has promised. It's nearer, and that's exciting, see? And that's the whole point that Paul's trying to make here. So we're waiting not for the salvation of our souls, but of our bodies. This body with all its lusts and all its desires and its thinking patterns and its drives and all of that. And it, and it keeps the new creation under wraps. And that is not done yet, see? It's not finished. We haven't inherited it. And I want to take a moment just to reinforce some things that we've learned because they connect to this passage that we're studying. And, and we have said before, the scripture is all interconnected and flows together, which is why we need to read all of it because it helps us understand every individual part. The Bible explains the Bible. But for time's sake, we don't always take time to do it. But I'm going to do it this morning because we're in the introductory section of this passage. And uh, this is very illustrating for us. But Paul's confidence for the future, and that first confidence is confidence that death is an upgrade. Death is an upgrade, and we're going to look at that in just a minute as a point. But I want to look at the passage from Romans chapter 6, verse 5. If you were with us 10 years ago or 9 years ago, you perhaps have, have seen this, but if you weren't, we'll go through it, and I think it'll be encouraging for you. Particularly because, just as a, just as a footnote, many of you know Pete Holman. And Pete Holman uh, was called to be with the Lord uh, on the 28th of uh, February. And he was a he was a guy who's been around at this church really since its beginning. He was very instrumental in, in helping to build this church. And, um, but he was called to be with the Lord at a very, fairly young age, I would say. And um, uh, there was some despair in the family. Now, we, we, we openly admit that when we lose a loved one, that leaves us huge shoes to fill, right? And there's a gap. We, we miss those people. We understand 
that there, there may be some hardship connected to losing them and, and, and all the things we expected perhaps would happen and we needed them to be around to do some certain thing. But the Lord has determined those number of days and, and he called Pete to be with him. And so, you know, it's a reality for us that we understand that we look forward to and are to look forward to, and that was the encouragement I was able to make to the family. We are to look forward to that day for those individuals. That's a marvelous thing for them. And, you know, they wouldn't come back even if they could. Do you know that? You've got to know that, okay? That, that the joy of that, that expectation needs to really replace uh, some of the things that are connected to uh, death as we, we think about it in Christianity. Sometimes it seems like the culture assaulted the church in some respects that we have this very doom and gloom idea about death. Yes, there's some sadness there and separation, but the joy of the fulfillment of the promise of throwing off the tent and in, inheriting the new dwelling is so overwhelming to make this something that Paul could say, listen, I look, I would rather, he says, I'd rather be at home with the Lord. Later, we're going to see that in the passage. I'd rather be at home with the Lord, but to be with you is more needful for you. But Romans 6, 5 is a great illustration of this. Um, he says this, for if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, what's that mean? That means that you died with him, okay? The Ad- Adam was put to death with Christ on the cross. You got credit for Christ's crucifixion, okay? When you came and uh, confessed your sins and repented of your sin and asked Christ to save you, you got credit for salvation because the Ad- Adam was put to death on the cross through Christ, and you got credit for that, okay? So we've become united with him in the likeness of his death. That's why salvation is bad news, good news, okay? You deserve death, and that's really what was on the docket for you, physical death and spiritual death, separation from God and the physical realm forever, that was on the docket for you, but that was transferred to Christ, and you were credited life, okay? But first you have to die, and that's super important to understand. As you come to faith, you, you, put to death all the, you, you have to put to death all those things. You count them in your mind as not worthy, okay? All your aspirations, everything you've held on to, plus all your sin and everything else, that goes to death. And we're united with him in the likeness of his death. If that's the case, Paul says, certainly we shall be. In the likeness of his resurrection. So if you've come to faith in the correct way, so you understand that you had to die, and you got credited Christ's life, your, your, sin was carried out on, uh, your sin debt was carried out on Christ, and you received life from him and his righteousness, you in, are, are, will be in the likeness of his resurrection. Now, when you were redeemed, you were united together with Christ in his death, you were buried with him and raised together with him, and that's why in baptism when we say uh, buried in the likeness of his death and raised in the likeness of his resurrection, that's a picture of what? That doesn't save you. You already were saved, right? If you, if you were put to death with Christ. But this is a picture of dying and rising. So the old man is dead and the new man rises with Christ. Okay, so it's very important to understand these steps of salvation. Very fundamental uh, to, our, to Christianity. You were immersed into Christ. And now what, has, what he has, you have. You could say, because we're still in this body, that you are a holy seed and an unholy shell. Or you are living in a tent, which is getting worn out, and someday you'll get a permanent dwelling, okay? Or someday you'll be like him. We're not sure what that will be exactly, but we'll know we'll be like him, right? Or we'll be adopted as sons, or we'll have the redemption of our body. Or however it's expressed, that's how it works, okay? And then Paul says in verse 6, he says, Know this, uh, uh, Paul says, Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, so he's making it clear, okay, in order that our body of sin might be done away with. What? We used to be is now dead. That's what it means to be crucified. The person we were before salvation is dead. You're not a new man and an old man together in this big battle, okay? You are, your old man was put to death. 
He didn't get raised from the dead, okay? Jesus did, and your new man with him, okay? It's important to understand that. The unregenerate nature, being in Adam, is gone. You are called a new creature in 2 Corinthians 5.17. We just read it, okay? You are a new creation, Galatians 6.15. Now, as you think about that, you can imagine it like this. The old man was kind of like the package that sin prospered in, but that old man is dead. So from now on, verse 6 says, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Then some will say, well, if the old man is dead, isn't sin gone? And Paul answers that question in verse 12. He says, um, verse 6, verse 12, therefore, do not let sin reign in your what? What's it say? Mortal body, so that you obey its lust. And there's a consistency here in Paul's terms, okay? The old man is gone, but the body isn't gone. And we say this many times, that the old nature and this corrupted body were in perfect harmony with one another, weren't they? Whatever the body desired, uh, the old nature was perfectly desirous to go along. Whatever that old nature desired, the body was perfectly happy to fulfill. That's that perfect harmony that happens in sinfulness. That's why people can think that they're happy. Because sinfulness can produce some happiness temporarily. And you think everything's okay. Your body is perfectly in line with the old nature. And you just fulfill all those desires and lusts. But when you come to faith for the first time in your life, the old man is dead. And there's a new man inside the old body. Which still has what? Some of its same desires. People say, well, why do I still have some sin in my life? Well, the body still has its same desires, doesn't it? The body still has its attractions, it has some baggage, it has some habits that you've developed over time. And what, it, what do you want to do? Well, it's, it's, it's crying out to be fulfilled, but the new man inside is saying no. So now what's going on? There's this huge battle going on, and we see that consistently in the scriptures. What my flesh wants to do, I don't want to do, right? I, I want to resist that, and for the first time in your life, you can because you have the indwelling Holy Spirit and the Word of God dwelling in you richly, beginning to sanctify you and change you and make you into a person that resembles a reprint of Christ. That's the whole idea of salvation in this future sense and the continued sense of salvation that goes on, okay? So, the old man was put to death so we would no longer be slaves to sin. What's it mean? That the, you've moved into a new field. Your master before was in the old field, and when he said, do it, you did it. But now you're in a new field, and the old master's still over there, and he's still yelling across the fence, hey, go ahead and do this and do that, but you don't have to obey him anymore, because now you have a new master, and you can obey the new master, see? So very important to understand that. So if the old man is dead, isn't sin gone? And Paul says, no, you know, he says, therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies that you obey its lust, which means what? That sin could be what? Reigning in your mortal bodies, and you could be What? obeying its lust. That could be the case. It doesn't have to be the case, but that could be the case. So when you pray, beloved, if you're, you're captured by thought life, or you're captured by whatever, this is, this is just a footnote, you're having a hard time with an attitude, understand something. You don't have to obey the old master, which was Satan, and you don't have to listen to the body because you have a new person inside, and you can make some changes, see? You don't have to let the body rule you like a slave, and that should be part of your prayer life. If you're understanding how this works, Lord, I don't want that part of my body to rule me like a slave. It doesn't have to. And so you're praying along with exactly what the Lord said to, to pray, and you're doing what the Lord said to do, and you look forward to victory as you move into sanctification. The Word is in your mind. You're replacing and renewing your mind by the Word of God and all those things that we've talked about, and you understand how that flows in. So there's a consistency here with Paul. The old man is gone, but the body isn't. Before we were saved, we were rotten on the inside and on the outside. The old man was wretched, and so was the body. But when we became a believer, there was this new nature planted in us, a new I, if you will. 
But we're still living in this mortal body, which Paul refers to in different ways. But in our new passage this morning, he calls it a tent decaying around us. We've been in it a long time. Later, he's going to refer to it as clothing. And we'll get a a, a new picture. and, and, And those illustrations last however long they last. They don't carry all the way out, but they give us an idea of what's going on. Okay? However he refers to it, death's an upgrade. And Paul helps us understand the wonderful nature of salvation. The redeemed are fit for heaven. And all God has to do is accomplish the redemption of your body. See? And Paul refers to that as the folding of the tent. Now, look back, if you would, quickly at um, our passage. And Paul says in verse 1, For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So the redemption of our bodies, the resurrection of our flesh... Uh, is what we've looked at already. Then look at verse 2. For indeed, in this house, and we're going to look at this at length, but quickly in the tent we live in now, what do we do? We groan. Okay, in this house, we groan. Why? Longing to be clothed with our he- uh, dwelling from heaven. Now, look how Paul says it in Romans eight twenty three, middle of the verse. And I put it on the screen for you so you can see it. Even we ourselves, what's he say? Groan. See, same idea with our, uh, within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. And, and that's similar phrasing and understanding of, of what we're talking about, the throwing off of the tent or the being adoption of sons. We groan to be unloading this tent and be into our permanent dwelling. That's what we desire. Uh, Paul says in Romans 8.23, we groan and eagerly await the adoption of sons. And we could say we're already adopted, of course, and that's right, but there remains this final part, and what is it? The redemption of the body, Okay. Philippians 3 illustrates it for us so well. It's in verse 3, it says this. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm pushing this because I want you to grasp this. this is, we need to really exchange some of, the stu- some of the thoughts we have connected with this promotion to heaven. And I think the only way we can do that is to, be, is to begin to really lay a really solid foundation where our minds can dwell uh, when we face these difficult things. Okay, uh, For we are the true circumcision, so it's not the outward works that get you there. It's the inner transformation, you know, the cutting away of sin. The whole, we've talked about that. Okay, spiritually dying with Christ and rising with Christ. And what do they do? They are those who worship in the Spirit of God. So we are the true circumcision, those who've been transformed on the inside, who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So no confidence uh, that it can earn salvation by doing anything good. No confidence that the flesh is going to be uh, uh, be able to deliver us. This is where our problems find their root, okay? Not that the flesh is bad. We're going to get the new body, okay? But this is this corrupted flesh. This is where our sin finds its, its beachhead. And so Paul says, we worship in the Spirit of God and, and glory in Christ Jesus, and we don't put any confidence in the flesh. See, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. He doesn't say, don't let sin reign in your soul. Sin isn't reigning there. Why? Because you are new. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Here he says, here he says, uh, we're the true circumcision. We don't put any confidence in the flesh. And then in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, he says this in 21. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 21, who will transform our souls? No. Why? Because you're already transformed on the inside. He's not going to transform your soul. That's what it says. Are we waiting to transform the old man, the old nature, the old Adam? No. That, that has already been put to death, hasn't it? That's already done. So what's left? He'll transform the body of our humble state in conformity with the body of his glory. See, it's the body. It's the flesh. It's the same idea, very consistent across the New Testament, that we are new on the inside. The body is the problem. 
The body's going to be exchanged for new. So Paul is talking about the resurrection. It's a marvelous thing. What's that body going to be like? Well, again, this is the same types of of, uh, understandings that we've been looking at, the throwing off the tent, in conformity with the body of Jesus' glory. That's what it's going to look like. So we can start to put together clues about how the body's going to look and what it's going to, what kind of form it's going to be in by just listening to the words of the, of the writers of Scripture and starting as they're carried along by the Holy Spirit and just kind of compiling those things. And that was my desire for you this morning, to be able to compile some of those things. What's the body going to be like? It's going to conform to the body of Jesus Christ. It's going to throw off the tent and enter a, a permanent dwelling. It's going to be an adoption of sons, the redemption of our body. We don't know what we'll look like, but we know we'll be like him because we'll see him as he is. So you can just say all those things and begin to compile what that's going to be like. Paul calls it a spiritual body in 1 Corinthians 15, 44. Paul calls it our body in 8, Romans 8, uh, 23. Paul calls it in 2 Corinthians 5, 1, a building from God, a house not made with hands. See? The, there is this inseparable connection between the new you and the body. God made us both here, and he'll bring that into perfection in the resurrection of the just, that first resurrection. See, And here later, Paul calls the Holy Spirit the pledge or the assurance, the first fruits. That's the resurrection and transformation that it will come to pass because the Holy Spirit's here making the down payment and guaranteeing that that's your future. See? That's part of our confidence in the future. And here in death, see, we have that confidence. There's been this down payment made to guarantee that wonderful future or transformation from the tent to the permanent dwelling, see. Now, all kinds of questions come up when we think this doctrine through, okay? And uh, because the resurrection of a dead body is still the resurrection of a dead body. And we are familiar with what that looks like, okay? So... It's just as foreign to natural thought to imagine anyone being resurrected from the dead as it's trying to comprehend Jesus being raised from the dead, okay? If you have meditated on that at all and understood that in the very smallest portion, you understand that Christ died on the cross and was laid in a tomb and sealed dead, okay? You need to understand that. Christ came back from the dead, And it's just as hard to comprehend that as it is to comprehend that we will be resurrected. A dead body is still a dead body. So it's it's foreign to our mind because we have no experience in this at all in the physical realm, personally. I mean, I've I've done many funerals. I've had many people come up to an open casket in the middle of the funeral and wail and ask the Lord to raise them. Could he? I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yes, shall he live. And he who lives and believes in me will never die. Who's the resurrection? Jesus. Can he resurrect at any time? Yes. But he's appointed for man once to die, and after this comes the judgment. Okay? So we understand how the process works. But, you know, it would still be surprising for us, right, if, if in the open casket the person sat up and began to breathe again. Just like when Lazarus was in the tomb and Jesus came, and they're like, and he's like, uh, Lazarus is only sleeping, and they're you know, laughing at him like, what are you talking about? He's like, just get the people away, and Lazarus, come on out. And somebody give him a tic-tac, okay? Just making sure you're with me, all right? So, it's still a resurrection of dead bodies, so lots of questions come up, right? So, that's the reason for Paul's focus in the passage, confidence in death, confidence in the future. For we know, he says, we know this, that if the earthly tent which is our house is torn down we have a building from god a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens for we know and this is this this is our first why why can we be confident in death well we have we have a sure knowledge that's the idea okay just means as we've seen in other passages this is a matter of common knowledge paul says 
This is a matter of common knowledge. We know this. This confidence isn't based on hearsay, anecdotal evidence. This is common knowledge of believers. Your confidence in the resurrection is based on Christ's resurrection. In, in John fourteen nineteen, what? Because I live, what? You will live also. Okay? So, in light of everything we've talked about up till now, you know this, right? It affects all circumstances. It affects all situations. Paul identifies with the understanding that believers are given. We can see this as foundational to all Christian doctrine, and believers recognize it for what it is. It is common knowledge among believers. We know this. What do we know? Well, we can be confident in death because death is an upgrade, and we've said this a couple of times, but this is, this is the issue that we can be sure of, okay? We've looked much at this much before, a little textual background because the promise is so rich, but for we know, he says, we, this is common knowledge among believers, you should know this, it's part of the fabric of, your, of, of salvation, it's, it's the foundational to Christianity, we know that if this earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, is torn down as present active subjunctive, kataluo, and, and uh, we have noted many times that the subjunctive mood is the mood of what? Contingency, right? There's contingency here. If, if our earthly tent is torn down, then what? Something's going to happen when the tent is taken down. When the camping trip is over, what then? For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, and you can put the word then in there, but you can see that it's, it's there, right? We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And this is where we get our second point of confidence uh, for our future. We have, present, active, indicative, echo men. If the, if the tent is taken down, then we have this, okay? And Paul pulls you in with that statement. That's a we. We have this. And the degree of contingency inherent in the indicative mood is zero, okay? This, this is... Uh, Present, active, indicative, echo, man. We have this, no contingency. This is for sure, okay? If this tent is torn down, so when that happens, okay, we're going to lose that tent, except for that one generation that will be around when what? When Christ raptures us, that generation will get to escape. And, of course, you want to throw in Lazarus, right? And he got to do it. He got to die and then come up and then die, and then he'll come up, Right? So there's some, there's some exceptions, but there are examples to us, right? And some Old Testament prophets got taken up, right, and walked with God and disappeared and got taken up. So we get the idea, okay, that rapture can occur and people can be taken when they're alive. But for the most part, uh, everybody else falls into the subjunctive uh, verb, you know. If the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So the degree of contingency here is in the indicative mood is zero. When the conditional statement becomes true, you get what? You get an upgrade. You go from, illustratively, a tent to a permanent home. That's a significant difference. When the unsympathetic landlord, if you will, that we call death comes with his eviction notice, it's not going to make you homeless. Okay. It's actually releasing you from a fairly wretched neighborhood down here, okay? That's what we have to remember, all right? From a tent city to a much better neighborhood up there. From a leaky, too small, uncomfortable tent on my senior year, uh, laying in a tent with a bunch of big dudes that were way too close to each other, it was way too hot, and too many bugs, and too much rain coming in, and all that. From there to driving home and getting to my own house, see? Except infinitely better, see, than that. 
there's a, there's a waiting for us, uh, there is waiting for us far more grand and glorious dwelling and a far better location. So Paul says, this is common knowledge, beloved. This is part of the fabric of your understanding. There is a resurrection, and consequently, Christians should have not only have no fear of death, but can be confident when it comes, because we're going to be in a dwelling place not made with hands. Now, because there are lots of questions about the nature of the new body and the resurrection, we recall Paul really preempting the questions. First Corinthians chapter uh, fifteen, verse thirty-five. Remember, we we looked at this months ago, years, probably a couple years by now. In verse thirty-five, he says this: "But someone will say, how are the dead raised, and with what kind of body do they come?'" And that's a very common thing to think, right? I mean, it's not, it's not a sin to say for us, well, okay, I, I get this. common knowledge. I'm going to lose the tent, and I'm going to get a uh, building not made with hands. So what's that going to look like? So some legitimate questions. People know, you know what it is for a body to rot away, and so they have questions. They know what it is for the body to break down, and so they've got questions. And, um, and maybe you've heard these, you know, do you think it's okay for me to be cremated? You know? What if your ashes are thrown up to the wind? You know, what if, what if you're blown up? What if you're lost at sea? You know, and the underlying worry is, um, will that cause a problem for the resurrection? Well, I believe that God can find the right ashes. And I think um, he can find all the right parts and he knows where all the parts are. And he formed us from the earth or from a rib, which was formed from the earth, depending on your gender. So, he won't have a problem reforming parts for eternity, right? Remember, God told Adam in, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 19, remember, by the sweat of your face, you're going to eat bread. This is after the curse. What does he say? By the sweat of your, your face, you'll eat bread till you what? Return to the ground from, from it you were taken. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now, when he tells Adam that, that's very encouraging to us. Why? Because that doesn't preclude a resurrection. It just gives a temporary state of the body until the resurrection. So I think if... If uh, he told Adam, hey, you know, you're going to go back to dust from which you were taken and you're going to turn back into it. But that's no, that's no inhibition to God doing whatever he wants with the resurrection, right? Because he made us from nothing to begin with. And, and so that would be the normal state for everyone who's been dead for any length of time. You know, Orthodox Jews traditionally insist on a wooden coffin, so all that process is completely finished. I mean, they want it to be broken down. They see that, and they know that's what it's supposed to be. So it's not unusual to wonder about people who have already died and whether they're in the faith or, or redeemed. What do they look like now? And we've looked at a lot of this for many years, and so we'll take just a look at it again, just refresh ourselves briefly, because the Bible explains the Bible. And we're going to fill in some of these assumed knowledge. So Paul is writing to the church. Of course, he spent uh, you know, a number of months there, and so he probably went over all this with them. We don't automatically assume that Every church, every and every age, are, are what it automatically remembers. So I want to remind you of some things uh, that can help help you understand how what the tent is, how the tent when it is taken down and you move into a, a house that's not made with hands. Kind of what that looks like and give you some foundation. I'd like you to turn quickly, if you would, Luke chapter sixteen. We're going to be done in just a second, but if you look there, I'd like you to read with me. I'm not going to put it on the screen. You can make some notes. Uh, there in your margin, if it's helpful, or uh, if you're using you uh, version, you can make notes there too. But um, it gives us some clues about that, uh, those things that we're talking about here. And Jesus is teaching, um, but here, I think it's interesting, Luke doesn't say, and he taught a parable saying uh, before he starts this story. And so I don't think it was a parable. I think it was, an, you know, I think it was illustrative of a real incident that occurred of course because christ is who he is he knows all these things which we don't but this passage is interesting because it doesn't say he taught a a parable here so i don't think it was 
Um, I could be wrong, I'm not dogmatic about it, but it just appears to be an actual story Jesus is relaying to help them understand this. In verse uh, 19, do you see where we are in chapter 16, verse 19? Now, there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, okay? Nobody's condemning that, that he he was wealthy. We understand all through Scripture. I just want to confirm, because we have so many in Washington who uh, think that you know, they're against successful people. They want everybody to be successful, but they hate successful people. So I just don't want you to think somehow that I'm buying into all of that. Okay, Second, uh, Second Timothy chapter 6 says, you know, those who are rich in the world, what? To be generous and ready to share. Okay, so I mean, it's not bad that the Lord has blessed you. Okay, don't feel badly about that. Don't let anybody anywhere think about that. And it's also not bad to barely have anything and barely make it paycheck to paycheck. Okay, the Lord, and we're going to talk about money as we move into Second Corinthians 8 and 9. Uh, where it all comes from and all that, so we'll, we'll fill all that in. But just I just wanted to say that. So there's a, there's a guy, he, he's habitually dressed in purple, fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Now, the name is only used here in the New Testament, but it's the name that refers to heaven. I don't want you to confuse it with some stopping place that's partway or whatever. Um, uh, the, the Pharisees would have been familiar with it as the name used in their body of tradition and teaching uh, called the Talmud. And so they understood it to be heaven. That's what we understand it to be and not some uh, partial stop-off point. And the rich man also died and was buried and in Hades. So again... Uh, his final stop-off point is very clear. Where is he? He's in torment. He's in the holding place until the final judgment. And we've looked at this over and over again. I don't have to go back through this. I can if you'd like, and if you've got questions, see me after or, or give me a text, and I'll, I'll try to fill it in. So he's in Hades. Uh, this is the name referring to the place of unbelieving dead or kept for judgment, and you know this. So he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. So whatever body the dead may have prior to the first and second resurrection, uh, they appear to be recognizable. So there's going to be a body that's given at the the moment of death for both, for the unredeemed and the redeemed. Those who, uh, Jesus said, the voice will call them out of the tomb, both those, uh, the living and those who didn't uh, repent and, and are awakened for death. So whatever body... It, it, that we have prior to the resurrection of the physical body, um, they appear to be recognizable because uh, so the rich man's in Hades and he can see Lazarus and he recognizes him, okay, and says, um, "Hey, have him come and uh, dip his finger in water." And, and number two, they obviously have a desire to at least drink and perhaps eat. So we can get that from the passage too, right? So so uh, Lazarus is reclining uh, and obviously. Uh, has some refreshment around him, and and uh, the rich man looks up and sees all of that, realizes he doesn't have any, and could he please just dip his finger and give me some kind of relief? Okay, so there's some desire to have that. Um, we know the eternal body of the redeemed will eat in the buried supper of the Lamb, so we understand that's going to be the case. So there's going to be some eating and drinking and those things going on. So verse 25 says, But Abraham said, Child, remember uh, that... During your life, you received your good things and likewise Lazarus' bad things, but now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. Now, this isn't a a just reward for everyone who's rich in life, kind of a Bernie Sanders posthumous redistribution of wealth, okay? It's not that. Um, The social status of the individual here doesn't determine their future location. Trusting God for his grace and salvation uh, determined the final location. 
okay? And, and we don't, I, we say, I say that, but I know I don't need to. You understand that. Verse 26, and besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. Uh, so nothing can be done about the final location of either individual. Once death has occurred, that final location is fixed with the exception of, of course, the rich man illustrative here, uh, in Hades will be held for the final judgment. And we've looked at that as we went through the book of Revelation. So you understand that. So um, verse 27 says, And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. So even the unredeemed understand God's power of resurrection. Okay, perhaps better uh, in their final place than they did even on earth. They're, it's not clouded with all the, uh, all the temporary... Uh, fun of sin and all of that kind of stuff. So here's the rich man. He's there in torment. Now everything is very clear and priorities are clear and he understands the resurrection and he understands uh, redemption and he says, listen, send Lazarus back. Let him tell my family, okay? I don't want them to end up here. And that gives us an idea perhaps of the thoughts of those who in the unredeemed who are in Hades are wishing for their families uh, not to fall into into the deception of there is no God and there is no heaven and all that, okay? Regardless of what people may say on earth who disbelieve the Lord, they will have it all straight when they're in their final resting place, okay? They'll have it all straight. So nothing to be done for the location of each individual. And so he says, you know, send, send Lazarus so he can tell my family so they don't come to this place of torment. And the unredeemed understand God's power of resurrection. Then verse 29, but Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. But he said to him, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they'll not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. So I'm going to stop right there as we're almost out of time. So there appears to be this body prior to the first and second resurrection. It's recognizable. It has similar desires. And, and it is a temporary body because, as we've seen, the actual physical body of everyone will be resurrected in the future. And so, but there is this temporary body. It's going to be, you're going to not be unclothed. You'll be clothed. And it's something we look forward to. And I think we can say with confidence, regardless of what happens to the physical body at death or after death, if the Lord can form a man from the earth, he can find all the parts. And everyone can say with Job, whether they want to or not, uh, even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, whom my eyes will see, and not another. Redeemed or unredeemed, you will be able to behold the Lord. You will see him, and you will be held in that position forever. So if you're with the righteous, forever you'll be with the righteous and in the presence of the Lord, and someday he'll restore a physical body to you. And we looked at that at length, so I won't go back over that again. And if you are if unredeemed, so you never came to faith, you will also be resurrected for a temporary body. It'll be in Hades for torment forever to be held until you come to the final uh, uh, judgment of the Lord, the great white throne judgment, and then cast into the lake of fire forever with a body that can never die. Do you understand this? This is, this is the truth for both sides, okay? This is the truth for both sides. It, you know, that's why Paul says, you know, at the end of this passage, we, we beg you, be reconciled to God through Christ. Why? This is, these are permanent decisions, okay? You reject, you reject the gospel, you, you will find yourself, like illustrative of the rich man, in Hades, in torment, knowing that your family perhaps is still living and they've rejected Christ, and you'll wish someone could go tell them. See, before you thought you were so smart that you would be fine, right? And you were deceived by the demons who are now mocking you as you sit in hell forever, that you believe that there wasn't a God and Jesus wasn't real. How stupid is that? They believe and tremble. 
But you were so foolish as to think that the salvation doesn't matter and that somehow you're going to be fine. And you're going to get the end and God will understand and we have a relationship with him. And, and you know, he'll say, okay, come on in. I know you weren't all good, but you weren't all bad and all of that. See? Actually, he's going to hold you, and then at the great white throne judgment, he's going to open up all the books, it says, and he's going to read everything that you did, everything that you said, and all that you were, and he's going to say, okay, the judgment, and did you come, is your name in the Lamb's book of, of life, did you come to faith and have all that sin put on Christ? And if the answer is no, the book is closed, and your final resting place will be forever in torment in the lake of fire. Do you understand? This is so serious, see? Which means that the other side is so glorious, isn't it? We didn't deserve any of it. Christ paid it all and then gave us this hope and says, I will fulfill all of this because I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit. He's the down payment. And someday you're going to inherit all of this and it's going to be yours forever. In a home not built with hands, I made it. And guess what? And like we talked about last week, in an earth, a remade earth, who made this, the same God who made this one, you're going to get to see that one with all the joys that are here, even a broken earth, he's made that for you with a body that will last forever and you'll get to enjoy that in his presence forever. That's so glorious, right? It's so horrible on the other side and so wonderful on this side. See, For the redeemed flesh, it's likened to a tent on earth and, and a glorious dwelling made by God in heaven and a temporary body for, for the first resurrection. And so 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, when the earthly body dies, it is sown, what's it say? A natural body and raised a spiritual body. It's another way to describe it, right? Sown a natural body, or it's the tent, raised a spiritual body, or it's this, it's this, this uh, habitation not made by hands, see? Sukikon, that's where we get the word physical, the word for psyche. According to the nature, natural order of things that God set up, a natural body. This is the tent that Paul was speaking of in this passage. It is a home fit for a temporary time. So when Paul says it's sown a natural body, it just means that, that the body that's put in the ground, like the tent that's taken down, it was the body that was suited for this world. See, Right now our physical body is natural. It's temporary, like, like the world. It was made to function in the world. And it's raised, he says, a spiritual body. See, If we're going to get a body that's perfectly suited for the next world, um, the confidence then that you have in the future should be just as sure as you know that the physical body God gave you was fit for this on this earth to live in. See, and that, that's the idea. It, it's raised a spiritual body, and in the resurrection, your new body will fit a new kind of life and dimension of existence and experiences that the Lord has prepared for eternity. And your house will fit the neighborhood you'll inhabit, if you will, if you use the tent and the house illustration. The body is physical and spiritual, and so it's ready for the new. Your 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 tent is physical it's made for here and the habitation for home is a different kind of habitation in a different kind of neighborhood with uh that you're going to inhabit for your eternal joy and your blessing or for your eternal damnation and your punishment whatever that happens to be see so your new body your new house will be fit for all that god has in store for those who love him for all eternity and it can be understood as a body that is attuned to the spirit if you will a body that's perfectly designed for the new you so you, you got the new you on the inside you get a body that's perfectly in tune with that new you see so doing exactly what the new you wants to do with none of the desires of the old body see the new home will be perfectly fitted for eternity. No waterproofing the floors, no waterproofing the seams, no repairing the screens to keep the bugs out, and the environment will be perfect, and the home will be too. And maybe you're sitting here today thinking, are you sure about all this? 
I mean, you know, I'm living my life. I'm doing my thing, you know. Everything seems to be okay. I mean, I'm just like everybody else, you know, good days, bad days, whatever. I'm eating and I'm drinking for tomorrow we die and that's it, you know. So I'm going to live it up and I'm going to do the things I want to do and, and uh, you know, and I'm okay with that. And I know about the here and now. You sure about this whole thing? And Paul says in First Corinthians 15, he says, if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Just in case you missed all the rest of it. In case you're thinking, well, it kind of seems kind of nebulous. I mean, this whole spiritual, earthly, whatever. He just says, listen, be clear about this. Just as certain and very pointed as it can be. As certain as you are of your life here, that is the same certainty you should have of the next. There is a spiritual body fitted for every individual who's ever lived. It will be fitted out for the environment it will inhabit. If it's punishment, it will be an eternal body fit for punishment forever. One that will not die, will not decay, will not stop feeling whatever it is. Just as the spiritual body for those who are redeemed will be able to enjoy the presence of the Lord forever in the kingdom he's prepared for them with all the joys connected to being with the Lord. In an earth he's designed with no sin, that you can enjoy, that he's prepared for you. See, You should have the same certainty of the next life as you have of this one. Now just this last trip back to our passage, because I want to leave you with this, and this is how Paul lived, and this was his attitude. And we look at this more in depth next time, but he says this, therefore, in verse 6, it's an illustration, I just want to jump up here. Therefore, being always of good courage, be always of good courage. We'll look at those words next time. Be always of good courage. And knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. And we are, verse 8, of good courage. I say and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. I have good courage that the Lord has planned this for me. I am thoroughly acquainted with what he's planned and I am okay with it and I recognize that while I'm here I'm absent from the Lord and I am looking forward Paul says to being home with the Lord and absent from this body and may I suggest to you beloved as we close that his attitude is not the result of some emotional high it's not the result of some loving encouragement by a friend on the deathbed okay it is not a result of some momentary grace of God it's not a temporary feeling due to a moment of excitement Okay, oh, I can't wait to be with the Lord, you know, just kind of this up emotional, but then later you're like, you know, I love the world. I don't want to leave the world. I don't want, I don't want my family to leave me. I don't want to lose my children. I don't want to lose my spouse. You know, you're, you're up here. Oh yeah, I can't wait. Oh, man. This is, we are of good courage. We're just very even keel, right? Across there. It's a constant thing for him. It never changes. It's always the same. That's because he has understood the joy and the promise and the blessing that's set before the believer with this new body that he's going to inherit. And he is more than willing to move on to that one. Why? Because he knows if there was any good in this one, as, as marred by sin it is, is, how marvelous the next one will be. And all the surroundings and the neighborhood, which are good here, marred by sin, will be so marvelous in the next one. So he's, I'm a good courage. I'm okay with all this. And this is not a result of somebody sitting beside your bed and trying to convince you that the next body is going to be much better and you can let go because it's fine. Because the Lord has designed this marvelous home. This is a tent. He's got a permanent residence for you, see. And so, 
that's my encouragement to you. That's our introduction to this passage. It is so full of just some wonderful, encouraging things and confidence, confidence for the future. I hope that it will be a blessing to you as we read through. Let's, um, let's close in prayer. We to be dismissed. And Lord, we thank you today uh, for your word. We thank you for an opportunity to uh, be here in this house together, worshiping and and giving as we recognize you've given all that we have. We recognize by worship that there's a portion that uh, make, uh, helps uh, confirm in our heart that you've given all of it, so we give some back. And by prayer, as we submit ourselves to your will and come under your authority and your leadership, uh, even by posture, Lord, bowing our head before you, knowing that you are sovereign and holy and worthy of all praise and glory and have all authority in our lives. And Lord, by by the lifting up of your praises, uh, saying true things about you, magnifying you as we magnify you, then we are uh, able to bring glory to your name. And so all these things, Lord, just part of what those who are called by your name do, because this is what we desire to do, is what the, the Holy Spirit inside of us desires, a new eye uh, desires this fellowship. Clothed in the body, we understand we have struggles, Lord. I pray that you'll help us to not let our body rule us like a king, but instead uh, offer our members up for works of righteousness. Be about that work in our heart. Lord, thank you and in our lives and our, and our physical bodies, Lord. And thank you for an opportunity to understand the clear distinction uh, between the final destinations, depending on what goes on here. So, Lord, we, uh, we present your, your, uh, your offering of salvation uh, to all who would desire to believe. Confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord. What's that mean? that you submit yourself to him, you confess everything he says about you is true, that you're a sinner, you're separated from him by your sin, that you're on your way to an eternity apart from him, and that you're under a curse. You're not worthy to receive salvation. You haven't done anything that's good that could merit it. In fact, everything even that you say is good is only human good, good to get something. And you confess those things and you repent. You're sorry that you've been that way and that you've done those things truly sorry and believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead what's that mean that he went to the cross in your place that in order for you to receive salvation he on the cross will have to have paid for all your sins and he has paid the debt of sin but you have to recognize that he did that because you deserved that debt and instead he took it from you And then on the other side of the grave was raised to prove that that payment was sufficient. Confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. You can pray that right now. You don't have to have any combination of words, but that has to be your heart attitude. God has promised marvelous future for those who love him. If you are not among the redeemed, then you will find yourself with a resurrected body in torment forever, paying for your sin. That's the reality. Regardless of what you may think, uh, how the world perhaps would give you a different perception, maybe your experience, that of your family before you, this is the reality the Holy Spirit uh, reveals through the Word of God. So we, as Paul says, beg you be reconciled to God through Christ. That's what it means, that God has a holy standard. You have not lived up to it. Christ has paid for your debt, and you can receive that forgiveness appropriated to you and your sin by confessing and repenting and believing. If you did that today, before you leave, 
take that card from the chair in front of you. Let us know that you prayed to receive Christ as your Savior. Give it to me before you go. Walk, just walk up and talk to me. It'd be my joy to pray with you and to encourage you and to help you be discipled, learn how it means to walk with the Lord. be our joy for that, to do that. For the rest of us, Father, I pray that you will magnify your word in our heart, that we might understand those things that we should uh, be uh, addressing in our own life. I pray to encourage us, even in the depths of difficult times and hardship, that you are aware of these things, using them for your own glory and to make us more like your son, and that you've promised an eternal home, and this tent is never was never home. It was temporary. Sometimes we're reminded of that more than at other times. But Lord, for those who are being reminded of it right now, I pray your grace and encouragement to them. And that these passages will be a tremendous encouragement as these days go on. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen.